Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overplayed by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You just press the press the mic button. Yeah. I'll do it. Hang on. Okay. Do me a favor, carry the music on. <laughs> Are you sure, Chris? <laughs> She's not going to let me watch it. <laughs> I think the TV has staged an intervention. That's the tenth time this week. <laughs> Do me a favour. <laughs> I'm calling your husband. Please go outside. Oh no, have they deleted it? <laughs> no. We've done you a favour, Chris. <laughs> Here we go. Oh. oh yeah. <laughs> Chapter 7. Are you a friend of Carrie? Welcome back to Out for Blood. We're reassessing Broadway's Uber Turkey. Carrie the Musical. My name is Holly. And I'm Chris. You may remember, uh, Carrie's closed down after just two weeks of performances, breaking records as Broadway's most expensive flop to date, with $8 million down the crapper. Well, that's a succinct way of saying it. (laughs) But with an epic standing ovation on closing night, and reports of its astonishingly madcap visuals and songs sweeping around theatrical communities, it had become instantly legendary. If you hadn't seen Carrie, you simply weren't part of that year's hottest gossip topic on Broadway. Within weeks of the show closing, a small advert appeared in the back pages of Theatre Week magazine. Are you a friend of Carrie? It asked in bold black and red type, followed by a postal address in New York's West Village, the city's gay district. Looking on Google, it's a fairly anonymous-looking apartment building now, sandwiched between a Steiner bookshop and a Mormon church. We have no idea what happened if you did indeed contact this mysterious fan club address. Were you added to some kind of special list? Did you get a free unitard in the mail? If anyone has got any leads, please do get in touch. Uh, I have a theory. Go on. So I think the Friends of Carrie Club was the first Carrie underground bootleg trading community. Ah. So you see, there never was an official cast album made of the original production of Carrie. A recording studio had been booked in June 1988, a few weeks after the show opened. But with the cast quickly scattered by the closure and nobody to put up the funds, this very unique show was never officially saved for posterity. The window of opportunity closed quickly. Um, It was never documented. We never made an album. We should have made an album. That was That was crazy that we never did that because we were all still here. But I guess 
you know, there was so much going on and people didn't have the money. The producer had run off. There may have been no authorised recording, but there are certainly plenty of unauthorised ones. And without those, we probably wouldn't be here discussing the show. Then, as now, there was a small but dedicated community of theatre fanatics who would illicitly record new Broadway shows, trading them amongst themselves in secretive groups. Nowadays, a quick YouTube search using the right keywords brings up a plethora of decent quality videos of major new musicals, filmed discreetly on audience members' phones and distributed to the world in seconds. Not that we would encourage such behaviour. Of course not. But back in the late 80s, though, it wasn't quite as simple. Camcorders and tape recorders were bulky and noisy and needed regular tape and battery changes. They had to be disguised in increasingly creative ways. There are stories on internet message boards about avid bootleg traders in the 80s booking out entire sections of Broadway theatres and surrounding themselves with friends to hide their oversized recording equipment from prowling ushers. Chris and I have been known to go to similar lengths to smuggle in handbag booze. Don't tell them the secrets. (laughs) And even if someone did successfully capture the show between the heads of other audience members without detection, the only way to distribute these recordings was on old-fashioned video or audio cassette tapes sent by mail. With real stamps. Friend of Carrie, Jeffrey McCann, remembers the exchanges. Oh, you you had to struggle. Like, oh, I want the Barbara Cook version. Oh, I have a different a different take of that night. Like, oh yeah, like it was just the craziest thing. And praying that the tapes don't disintegrate. These recordings still survive. Many are hard to watch or listen to, with the sound and visuals degrading with each new generation of copies made over the years. But they are a fascinating record of a legendary show continually in flux. The cast members' claims that they never performed the show twice is backed up in the recordings, which feature all sorts of baffling quirks and tweaks at performances just days apart. It's also exciting to be able to hear how the audience reacted to some of the show's more bizarre sights and sounds. And, even if an official cast recording had been made, it would have been in a studio without the live audience, and we'd never get a sense of the increasingly electric reaction from the crowds as the run went on and more and more people came along to see if the show really was as crazy as they'd heard. The most well-known audio recordings of the show are soundboard tapes from the closing nights in both Stratford and on Broadway. Rumoured to have been rescued by members of the crew, these recordings are live feeds of what's happening on stage, usually played backstage so that the crew and actors in their dressing rooms can keep track of the show. The Broadway closing night audio is particularly clear, and various fans have tried remastering the sound quality. In fact, there was recently an online campaign to have the Broadway closing night recording saved in the National Recording Registry as a record of national importance. Where do I sign? There are also plenty of other recordings made by audience members themselves. Some are much clearer than others. You can imagine these fans dotted around the auditorium, clicking on their tape recorders and hiding them inside pockets and bags as the show began. There's also a pretty clear recording of the 1984 workshop of Act One. So if you're particularly obsessed, like us, you can hear how the show changed even before it made it to the stage. The cast didn't even know it existed until recently. Julie Cohen, Laura Dean and Annie Golden recall. I didn't know there was a recording of Carrie. Laura, did you know there was a recording of that one? I actually did know, and I, I found it once on the internet, and I think I have it on my computer, but honestly, I haven't listened to it. And I thought to myself, I should listen to it and refamiliarize myself with the show. But that's where I, I got the, uh, the bootleg copy from, you know, like a fan. Yeah, you do these things, and then, you, you know, they go into the ether, even, even in 85 when we did it, or 85 when we did it. But um, they go into the ether and then um, somebody surfaced with it and said, wait, you haven't heard it? Oh, I've had it for years. But Carrie really lived on through illegal video recordings of the show. And of course, that's how we and many other fans first discovered it. 
And before YouTube, the only way to experience these was on good old-fashioned VHS tapes. Copies were sent around the world by eager traders and sellers who saw the opportunity to make a quick buck from musical theatre aficionados, desperate to see what all the fuss was about. By December 1988, just a few weeks after the show closed, video bootlegs were apparently circulating for $65 and up. And by the mid-90s, some fans claimed to have seen videos of the show for sale for hundreds of dollars. How much did you pay? I mean, what are student loans for? (laughs) Later, as the internet grew more and more accessible, forums and sites began to appear where fans would submit the rare photos and videos they had collected. Robbie Rizal created one of the first online presences for carry collectors. I grew up loving two things. Betty Buckley, musical theatre, and the novel Carrie. And when I discovered that both of those things came together in this musical form, I went online to find out anything about it. But of course, nothing existed at that time. Truly, going online was like inserting an AOL diskette and getting 10 free hours. So um, there really wasn't anything. So I created a website with images that I found of the show, um, I went to the local library to hand type the reviews from Stratford and um, from New York uh, and put them online. Robbie's site rapidly expanded beyond text and photos to include the bootleg video and audio recordings that had been made of the original performances. The first time I got a hold of any kind of bootleg for the show, it was um, a double cassette a double audio cassette of the closing night soundboard. And, you know, they're all very different. Um, but th- they came in the mail to me. There was a, a, a guy in the sort of, I guess, bootleg community who thought that I should have this. And so he sent that along to me with a playbill from the show. And I was mesmerized. People wanted to help bring Carrie online and have this legendary show that, you know, so few people had seen or heard uh, to a bigger crowd. And it truly was when the internet was just sort of coming of age. So it like the website was built in, I think, GeoCities at first, before we had like a URL of our own. As more and more people got online, the site rapidly grew in popularity. It even featured in an article in Entertainment Weekly magazine. I remember it vividly because I was an Entertainment Weekly subscriber and I did not know this was happening and I opened it up and there it was. The um, analytics of the website just flew. Uh, it, It just went sky high. It's a phenomenon that can't truly be explained, but I definitely got to live through it in its heyday. Thanks to sites like Robbie's, Bootleg recordings, previously exchanging for cold, hard cash, were now free to view around the world at the click of a mouse. Including here in merry old England, where us pioneering Brits had also discovered the World Wide Web. I used to go to the Internet Café um, and I started researching it on the Internet Café. Craig Hepworth runs a theatre company here in the UK. He's also a long-time Carrie superfan. There were a couple of websites devoted to Carrie and there was um, a guy that I could get a audio from the I think it was the Broadway soundboard audio so I got that first and and I fell in love with it it was such a strange mashup of a show but there was there was something that was so unique and interesting about it 
I mean, the flaws of the show were very obvious, but I think its strengths were in, also equally obvious. Um, and I just became really obsessed with this this show, this strange show. So I kind of went on this crazy mission. I just wanted to know everything I could about Carrie. Perhaps the most well-known video of Carrie is a full show recording from the 3rd of March 1988 in Stratford, filmed from a fixed position at the back of the auditorium. It wasn't made by an audience member, but by the RSC, who always make a simple recording of their shows for the archives. It's the only video of the entire show, and until the mid-90s, the only way to see it was to book an actual real-life appointment to attend a screening room at the RSC offices in Stratford-upon-Avon. But then, mysteriously, the video of the full show popped up in the online bootleg communities. So I phoned them and I said, do you have a copy of, of Carrie? And they were like, oh, we've not heard anybody ask to come and see that one ever. I was like, wow, that's crazy. So I, um, I booked to go down and, and, and view the show with a couple of friends. And I remember we got there, uh, we signed in and they took us into a room and uh, they rolled in this old TV, uh, you know, with the video recorder. This was in the 90s, late 90s, I think. Anyway, after we'd watched it, I remember, well, first of all, I remember watching it and thinking, my God, this is not what I expected it to look like. Um, and then just being thrilled and fascinated by this show as well. I couldn't believe this next bit. Anyway, I bought a blank videotape with me and I decided if I got the opportunity, I was going to leave with the carry tape and leave them with the blank tape. Um, and I did. I switched the tapes and I ran through Stratford-upon-Avon, um, panicking that they were going to be chasing us down the road. Um, and then I got home and I copied Carrie and then I sent them the copy back, which I know is very bad, but I, I really wanted to keep hold of the original and it was just sat there. Um, so I still have the original Carrie video and, um, I ended up sending it out and, and especially to people who had like the Carrie fan sites and stuff like that, just to, um, so the Carrie fans could finally see this, this show in, in full. Um, I didn't realize the video would kind of go on to be such a, a huge deal. But yeah, I still have the master here. Simple video, it didn't have a case or anything. It just has Carrie 1988 written on the uh, on the side. But yeah, that's how I, uh, how I got hold of Carrie. The Holy Grail. He's like some sort of Robin Hood bootleg thief. Uh, there are some other videos from Stratford filmed in the rehearsal studio and of the cast taking part in the tech rehearsals. And many of these do seem quite official. Uh, we know the RSC was obviously hoping for a big hit with Carrie, so it seems they were keen to document the creative process. Thank you, 80s RSC marketing team. Cast and crew members also recall that other early performances in Stratford were filmed, but no other footage of the actual show on stage during the UK run has surfaced. We also know a film of the show was sent to Betty Buckley when the writers were courting her to take over from Barbara Cook. So who knows? Somewhere there may well be a treasure trove of VHS tapes of the Stratford Carry in an office somewhere. But what about the Broadway production? Well, some individual scenes were professionally filmed and released to broadcasters to use in their reviews of the show. Considering the scathing reception from the TV news shows after opening night, the producers maybe came to regret that decision. But this footage, known as the B-roll or the press reel, is the only professionally made performance footage of the original Carrie that exists. As the final performance was announced with just a couple of days' notice, and realising there was no full video of the final version of the show, ensemble member Scott Wise decided he couldn't miss the opportunity to capture it for posterity. Deputy stage manager Jeremy Sturt called the cues for every performance from high up at the back of the theatre, above the heads of the audience. Once the cast had been informed of the show's imminent closure, he remembers Scott coming to have a word. 
but uh, he came to me and he said um, he had a, one of those old video camcorders and he said uh, do you mind if I film the show and I said well from where and he said well up where you are because you've got the best view of the show and I was on the gantry where the follow spot operators were and I was calling the show from in the middle of them. Jeremy had a word with the follow spot operators who being highly unionised were sticklers for the rules. We checked with the spot guys they didn't seem to mind too much I think a, a few dollars exchanged hands or whatever and um, so Scott placed the uh, camera between my feet and changed the film I uh, changed the uh, sorry, the card um, at the interval, and that is why you have that footage which is shown on YouTube. So it's thanks to Scott and Jeremy that we have any live footage from Broadway at all. But due to the limitation of 80s camcorder batteries, all we have is the first half. The footage cuts off during the intermission. Basically, all he's got is the audience for half an hour and then the first half of the show. So, we'll never see that Broadway blood-soaking finale. Nobody has ever provided evidence of seeing a full film of the New York edition of the show, although rumours persist that an audience-filmed bootleg exists in the hands of one prominent collector. Mm. Whether a full recording of the infamous Broadway production will ever emerge, only time will tell. You may be able to get high-definition phone videos of any musical going these days, but if you ask me, those blurry, shaky 80s camcorder and tape recordings of the original carry add to its charm and its mystique. And the demand for those rare recordings, not to mention the thrill for fans receiving them, was definitely a major part of what kept the legend of the show alive. They also inspired a new generation of creatives and composers. Hi, I'm Joe Iconis. I'm a musical theatre writer and performer. I wrote Be More Chill and Broadway Here I Come and a whole bunch of other stuff. As well as being a very nice and very handsome Tony-nominated writer, Joe has been a self-confessed Carrie superfan from a young age. You know, I don't even, I couldn't, I don't, I don't even know, I don't know why. I, I, it's one of those things where Carrie kind of came into my life at a very young age uh, and it's kind of never left. I was close to the city without living in the city. I was lucky enough to see a lot of theater and how I educated myself as a young person was just reading all I could get my hands on about theater and about how theater was made. And so uh, I remember I was at Barnes and Noble. I would just go and I would look in the theater section constantly. And I remember I saw uh, Ken Mandelbaum's book, Not Since Carrie, Perhaps the biggest thing to shift Carrie's failure into the mainstream was Ken Mandelbaum's book on flop musicals released in 1992, titled Not Since Carrie. The Bible. Yes. It covers hundreds of flops, but dedicates its opening and closing chapters to Carrie, essentially saying that no other Broadway flop had or ever would compare to the show. I was I was young enough that I was both immediately intrigued and immediately terrified by the cover image of, you know, that bizarre production shot of Lindsay Haley, like smiling and covered in blood. And it was like, it truly was this thing of like, is that, is that blood? The book's cover has a shot of Lindsay Haley as Carrie, dripping with blood, but smiling for the photographer between takes at a publicity shoot. And I just started reading about it and, you know, sort of imagining what it could be. And I just became obsessed with the the show with the musical and you know in like my in the the early days of the internet i you know like 12 year old joe was like 
constantly, you know, internet sleuthing, trying to find whatever information I could get my hands on about Carrie the Musical, of which there was not a lot at that time. You know, it really felt like it's like not only this musical that was like notorious because of, you know, its subject matter and because of it, what happened to it on, you know, on, on, on Broadway. Um, but there just wasn't a lot about it in the way that there, there was about other sort of similarly large scale, um, uh, uh, you know, unappreciated musicals. I hate the F word, the flop word, you know, so try to think of other words. <laughs> This is now a Joe Iconis Stan podcast, by the way. Now? <laughs> this story gets too good not to include in full. Signing up on all the online theatre forums, he soon encountered nefarious types offering the various carry bootlegs for sale. For Joe, it was hard to resist. When I was like around 12, and so I then became like obsessed with, you know, trading bootlegs and, and VHSs and audios and all those, those things. And, and my number one thing was always carry. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, how do I get my hands on carry stuff? And at the start of that, it's like there wasn't carry stuff sort of floating around. And the like, the Holy Grail was like a video of carry, but I was like, I'll take anything. And then I finally found the audio um, which is, I think, I mean, I think it's like the most well-known audio of like the final Broadway performance, the soundboard, you know, audio. Um, and so I remember that I I got it and I think I paid for it. I think that it was like a person who was like not interested in trading. They were like, I will sell you this carry audio for, you know, what, it was probably a hundred dollars. It was like, the, I remember this, they were, they, it was like expensive. A tidy sum for a 12 year old. And I, I remember like both like trying to save money and also like having to ask my, my mom for money and, and like, and having to lie about it in the way that like when I watch movies and I see like, you know, high school kids lie about like money for drugs or something or like money for booze. I was literally like a middle school kid lying about money for my carry audio bootleg, you know? But I, I got it. I did it. And it, and it, you know, I put cash in the mail and, and, and I got the, I got the cassette tapes back. And I remember being in my bedroom and my uncle Walter had come over for dinner that night. And I was always, I have like a big Italian family and like we're always sort of like always around each other. At the family dinner, Joe had his mind on just one thing. And, uh, but I remember that night I was like holed up in my bedroom listening to to carry and i would like go downstairs and uh, you know let myself be like kissed by you know aunts and uncles and i would have like a few bites of pasta and then run back upstairs and like listen to two more songs back downstairs have some chicken back upstairs listen to a few more songs i was just so excited and could not believe that i was finally getting to listen to this thing that i had read so much about and had like fantasized about for years was he impressed I truly remember being like, oh my gosh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be at all. And then it immediately goes into the creepy, like film scorey, like, you know, that, that, that opening, da, 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 that whole thing. And it was so like, oh my God, this is exactly what I hoped it would be. This is like creepy and it doesn't sound like musical theater and this is amazing. Um, so yeah, I was just like totally blown away. I've had a lot of great things happen to me, but the absolute maddening joy of receiving the video cassette of act one of Carrie on Broadway was like, there's just no no other feeling. It'll never be tapped. Like any addict, Joe had to take things a step further. 
And I did, you know, what any like enterprising young theater fan would do. I used that video as leverage to get other videos. And so I was like, I got this video. So, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, trade and do my whole thing. And so I was very like public. I was very brazen and public online about being like, I have this video of Carrie. How cool is that? And also, what can you, you know, what can you give me for it? Um, not fully understanding the internet. And so I'm in, I was probably, you know, a freshman in high school at this point. Things took a surprising and terrifying turn. Literally get a call one day from Betty Buckley's attorney. <laughs> like at my at my parents' house. And the lawyer literally is like, hi, this is Betty Buckley's lawyer. Um, am I speaking to, to Joseph Iconis? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, so you're, um, you've got this illegal videotape uh, I'm going to need you to send me every copy you have or we'll be pressing charges. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. It was the most like frightening thing. And also it was like the first like, oh, the internet's real. Like this, is, this isn't a joke, you know, like Betty Buckley will sue you if you have this, this videotape and Betty Buckley can find me on suburban Long Island. And so I, of course I made, <laughs> of course I made like, you know, a copy of the, the tape and then sent that to the lawyer and then kept my, my own copy. Can you imagine? Oh my God. It's terrifying. <laughs> Joe would go on to work with some great Broadway names himself, including Betty Buckley. And it's something I've never, I have not yet actually told Betty that story because, and I've, and I've spent so much time, like truly we've like hung out and like, she knows my family and like it's, but there's just never been a time where it's like, this is such a funny story because there's part, there's still part of me. That's like, I don't want Ms. Buckley to be angry at me for, for trading this videotape, even though now she'd be so cool with it. Like she's super down with bootlegs these days, but um, yeah, it was so terrifying. How did Joe end up working with his icon? Betty Buckley, truly out of the blue, a few years ago, um, she messaged me on Facebook, like out of the blue. And she was like, oh, I really like, I like your, your stuff. I like your stuff a lot. Uh, I just wanted you to know. And, you know, maybe one day we'll get to work together. And it was the most like, no, this isn't, this can't possibly be happening. And it was so terrifying. And I truly had this moment of like, I can't, I can't not, I can't not, you know, not work with Betty Buckley. Betty came to rehearse at Joe's apartment. He had to take a step back to fully appreciate the surreal scene. And I, like one of the few, I don't have any of my own show posters on the wall, but the one, um, literally the one show poster that I have on my wall uh, is Carrie framed and it's like Betty Buckley and I've had it since I was in high school and it's like Betty Buckley is singing this song I wrote just for her um, and in the song she plays kind of a violent woman and, and the the Carrie poster is framed on the wall it was all just too much for me so that was that was how, how uh, Margaret White entered my life. Some songs from Carrie lived on in other recordings. Betty Buckley and Lindsay Hately both recorded tracks on their own studio albums in 1993, Betty released When There's No One on her album Children Will Listen, and the following year, Lindsay sang Carrie on her CD, Sooner or Later. In 1996, Betty staged an AIDS fundraising concert at Carnegie Hall, and, to the delight of fans, invited Lindsay on stage to perform the title track and their harrowing duet, And Eve Was Weak. In interviews, Lindsay has described the concert as a moment of closure, giving her the chance to return to New York and sing those iconic songs with Betty one more time. In 1999, Broadway star Alice Ripley released an album of duets called Unsuspecting Hearts. I made two albums with my co-star Emily Skinner from Sideshow. 
And the second one is called Unsuspecting Hearts. And that's a song from Carrie. And that was the first time I ever really heard music from Carrie. Of course, we have to sing a duet from Carrie. Of course, we have to sing Carrie because, you know, I do have a strong streak of wanting to give people what they want as much as I can. And I know people want to hear that music. This was back then in the 90s that we did that album. So. Alice would go on to star as Margaret in the 2016 Seattle production of Carrie and we'll be hearing from her about that experience in the coming weeks. We'll be back after this quick break. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Carrie, both the musical and the source material, also inspired other unique stage productions in these wilderness years. I wrote Scary in, geez, 1998. Um, and it was the first musical I had ever written. And um, it was kind of a no-brainer because um, Scary the Musical is a tribute to more to the film, Carrie than anything else. David Serda's Scary, the musical, a drag parody, was so popular it's been staged three times. When we first ran Carrie, it ran 18 months late night in Chicago. It was a huge hit. It got great review in the Chicago Tribune. And we did it again and tried to like imp- make it bigger. We had a little more money and we realized it was a great production, but it's fun. It's better low budget. And so then I did another version back sort of closer to the roots of of the original production. I think the story, um, any, for a a gay teen, it really resonated for me. Um, And I went to school exactly at that time period (laughs) in the late seventies. And so it was so spot on the way the girls were in high school. You know, I don't know if they were that cruel, but probably if they had access to pig blood, I would have had some thrown on me, you know. Drag queens have mined plenty of material from the more over-the-top aspects of the Carrie story. I know there's been other... There have been there are scary, the musical Carrie parodies by little theatre companies throughout the United States. I don't know if they've done them in the UK, but if you look, there's like a very Carrie Christmas, there's Carrie this, Carrie that. People love Carrie. And like in Drag Race, when Raja did Carrie uh, with the bucket of blood hat. So it's a big part of, um, it's a big part of our pop culture here in the States. And like sitcoms always make reference to it. Are we likely to see Scary the Musical again anytime soon? 
I, I got a cease and desist finally when we did Carrie for the third time, which was about five, six years ago. And I think people were interested in it. And I think somebody maybe um, notified Rogers and Hammerstein who owned the rights to it about it and asked or something. I don't know. Um, David saw the real off-Broadway revival in 2012 and the structure felt familiar. Once I saw the, the revival, I realized why they, I got the cease and desist. It's almost scene for scene, like the one I wrote 20 years ago. <laughs> because it's the film, you know, and it's all the scenes and all the songs are motivated by um, the same kinds of songs. We have, I have a song about, um, uh, you know, uh, Eve was weak and... Um, just, you know, the song when they're killing the pig, a song of, uh, about taking Carrie to the prom, a song, everything. It's like almost the same, except they take it seriously. I just, I don't know that a straight adaptation works on the stage. For me, I don't see any way else of doing a parody of Carrie without making it a, a comedy. Even original cast members have been inspired to retell their stories in new creative ways. Ensemble member Eric Gilliam lives in Hawaii. Uh, before the pandemic, I, I'm, 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 uh, I've written and have been uh, performing and touring a one-man show titled The White Hawaiian. And uh, in the show, I do a tribute uh, to Carrie, and I do the pig number, but I do it in a way that's extremely campy. Um, and, and, it, and, and the audience just gets, and they can't believe it. I, you know, this is like one of the biggest Broadway, you know, shows in the history of Broadway. And, and here's a song from it. And it, and it opens, and I do the, and I do the pig song. Uh, and, and people just, they, 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 they just can't stand it. As years passed, the combination of the Not Since Carrie book, the bootleg recordings, and the increasingly frequent references in popular culture led to the writing team receiving hundreds of requests to restage the show from producers and directors all around the world, either as full-blown productions or in concert versions. Not least from us, but still stinging from their harrowing experience and the mocking reviews, they were reluctant to put Carrie back into the world untouched. Some directors took matters into their own hands. I just thought, wow... We should do Carrie. It's the perfect show for Stage Door because it's all female leads and a female ensemble with, uh, you know, as many guys as you can get throw in the, in the mix. So anyway, um, I had actually been thinking about doing it for a long time, but there were no rights available. Jeffrey Murphy was a director at Stage Door Manor. Yeah, so um, Stage Door is a performing arts training center in upstate New York. Um, it's a theater camp. But um, at least when we were there 20 years ago at this point, um, it was a very serious theater camp um, and we were treated like adults and professionals. We were not treated as kids in rehearsals. That's Kaylee Smith Westbrook, who played Chris. So I did carry my second to last year there when I was, I guess, 16. Um, I went for nine summers. Um, so I loved it. It holds a very special place in my heart. Unable to license the show officially and hoping to stay under the radar of the rights agents, Jeff decided to plough on with his own unofficial production of Carrie. And I got a pirated CD audio, an audio of the whole performance. So um, my friend John and I, we sat down and we, he, he, I don't type, he typed out all the dialogue 
we have the score, and um, we fiddle around with a couple little things here or there, change a little some stuff that we wanted to change, and then um, we started rehearsal. They hoped the writers wouldn't hear about their production featuring the summer camp teens. But a week or so into the process, the camp's administrator appeared at the door. She'd received a worrying phone call. So anyway, uh, they had found out. So Carl, who was the owner, Carl called uh, Michael Gore and Larry Cohen and said, uh, look, you know, I will give you however much money to whatever charity you want if you'll let us do the show. And they said yes. Todd Graff, who had played Tommy in the 1984 workshop of the musical, had spent five years at Stage Door. So I went there for three and I worked there for two. And uh, the, you know, it was, it, for me, clearly it was life-changing. It was life-changing as a kid because I was a kid that was in like a lot of stupid trouble. And then this really helped me kind of find my focus and what I wanted to do with my life and et cetera. And, the friends that I made there are still my very close friends, and uh, and, and I'm still very close to the people that run the camp. And then uh, I obviously grew up and wrote and directed a movie about that experience of being there. So anyway, the one so when they decided they wanted to do Carrie, you know, it had never been done except in this notorious Broadway version, and it had been decades by then, right? So. But they didn't care, you know, they, they don't care. So they just did it. They didn't ask permission. There was no one to ask. Michael and Larry, I can't remember if they got wind or I told them, but at any rate, not told them like to get the camp in trouble, but just because I thought it was so hilarious and classic stage door manner. And to their credit, they said, oh my God, we want to see it. Not, oh my God, we're going to shut it down and send cease and desist letters. And so they went and and watched it. And so the first time they had ever seen the show since Broadway closing night was at Stage Door Manor. And so, with the blessing of the writer and composer, the show went on. How did it feel to be the first person to play Carrie since the doomed original? Julie Kleiner Davis was cast in the role. I could see what it was going to be and we knew we were going to work with Jeff and when you get to work with Jeff, you know the shows are going to be amazing no matter what. And then once I started hearing the music and, you know, as a teenager to be able to do something that I maybe wasn't the total outcast as Carrie, but when you're a theater kid back in that day, you know, and there's no Hamilton for everyone to relate to, it's like I was an outcast and Stage Door was my home. So I really got to sort of explore how I, uh, how I felt in my own school uh, at, that, at that age. Not only did the writers hear about the production, they actively made suggestions. Uh, and then they actually came to see the show. So, um, and they loved it because they said, this is what, the way we always wanted to see it done with real kids, with real teenagers. And they said, where did you get the girl who plays the mother? I said, well, she's, you know, one of the campers. She said, I don't believe it because, you know, Vivian... The way she was dressed and everything, you know, and this, you'll see this a lot of stage or productions that, you know, these um, teenage girls turn into women on the stage. And uh, she was quite convincing as a 40 year old, 35, 40 year old woman. I've also sounded like this since I was 11. So that helps. That's Vivian Cleary, who played Margaret. And they loved it. And they loved what we did with it. And uh, they, they just couldn't believe it. 
uh, and this is the way we always wanted to see it done. So I think, I think that they thought about it. Well, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of kids, real teenagers doing it, and it, and was you know clued into what stage door was, and um, gave us the go ahead, and they both came to see the show and. They were very, very positive. What was it like for these musical-loving teenagers to meet a real-life Broadway legend? But I was covered in blood when I saw him, and I remember just being freaked out and excited. So, When Michael Gore, I will tell you, I have a great memory of him. I have even this picture of him where you can kind of see it all, where he's hugging me. And there's almost like he's just this beaming face. And I remember him saying how excited he was to see this with kids because it's so transparent then what kids bring um, in that light to to this feeling of being an outcast and what that is and exploring that. So I know, and I remember him saying to me, oh, I'm gonna, now we're gonna do it again and I'm so excited, I'm gonna put this back on. And he was, he was thrilled with the production Jeff put on. For Kaylee, it was a memorable performance for other reasons. I think I'm pretty sure that was the night that I had, which I think is on YouTube, which is the night that I like blacked out on stage and forgot my lines and like jumped half a song. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it's, it was a traumatic moment for my 16 year old self. It had never happened before. And I'm pretty sure it was when they were, they were there. Viv's meeting with composer Michael Gore was rather nerve wracking. I didn't see him until I was making my entrance and I'm singing, let Jesus in, open your heart. And I'm going through and I have these prop pamphlets to hand out to people in the audience and I'm handing it out. I'm proselytizing, come to Jesus. And I turn around as I'm singing and I hand one and I realize I'm looking directly at Michael Gore and he's smiling at me and he's, we're both holding onto both sides of this pamphlet and I freeze and I'm inside. I'm going, but I, I'm, I'm sure I kept it together because he didn't start laughing at me. But I do remember I held on to that pamphlet a little too long and we were just kind of like, mm, and I kept going. But for the rest of the time, I, my head felt fuzzy. Like the rest of my trip to the stage, I'm just like, because ah, 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 ah. I'm just like this 17 year old loser musical freak. And I'm I, I, I almost touched Michael Gore. We touched the same piece of paper at the same time. It was a defining experience. And they were so gracious when they met us backstage. They were just so incredibly gracious and wonderful to these bunch of kids who like, you know, that vibrating energy of like, there was, you know, 25 kids going, ah, you know, waiting for them to speak to us. And I'm sure that must have been a lot. But uh, they were just so wonderful and they took time with each of us to say like, oh, you were great, you did so good. I loved the energy. So to a bunch of uh, overly nervous teenagers, that was incredibly kind. In the great Carrie tradition, somebody filmed the show and later it ended up on YouTube, the first full bootleg recording of the show since Stratford. I guess when videos started popping up, it was like, oh, that's so funny. Who would have posted that? Like, I didn't I didn't think much of it. It's not like now where I think you do a show and immediately someone goes and posts it online and you can see clips and stuff. Um, so, I mean, I thought, I think I thought it was fun when like all of a sudden clips were, you know, out there. Still to this day, people still say to me, Carrie White eats shit because that was my line and I'm the one that said that. Even when working professionally years later, their little summer camp production would follow them. I've actually been approached in audition waiting rooms, uh, usually like the first 10 years after we did our show. I was in I was in the waiting room of an audition for, I think the Britney Spears musical that never ended up happening and now it's happening. And this chorus boy, he had to have been 19 or 20, 
heard me talking to somebody and warming up and he goes, were you in Carrie the Musical at Seashore Manor? And that's the first time I found out there was the pirate video going around. I can say that I was going to Broadway auditions. I was cast in a Broadway tour and none of it mattered because as soon as they saw Carrie the Musical on my resume, that was everything. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I, rem- I got emails from people. I remember somebody telling me, again, I'm so old, but you know, the YouTube phenomenon wasn't so the rage yet. And so somebody saying, I think you're on this thing called YouTube right now with this video. And I was so confused. And then as a kid, I remember getting on and people were commenting on my performance and I was getting really upset about it if they were negative comments. I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't know it was going to get, I didn't know it was going to be put on here. Uh, But that show really did years and years and years of of castings uh people would bring that up i I would say until the revival came out it was the my claim to fame it didn't matter what else i did who else i worked with huge stars didn't matter that was the thing you did carry the musical at stage door manor julie didn't you go to an audition and someone said that you were lying on your resume uh, that you that you weren't Carrie the musical. They lie, and you you were lying about it, and they were quite nasty to you. Do you remember that? I do okay. remember that in New York. I did. I that was something I forgot about that one. I did, and I remember calling you, and I couldn't believe they didn't believe me. They they said I put it that I lied, that no one's ever done it. And I said no, no, it's done at stage door. I I promise I did it, and I didn't get hired because I think they thought I was a big fat liar. Another two unlicensed performances were mounted a year later at Emerson College in Massachusetts. A friend told Jeffrey McCann... Another Jeffrey. ...about Carrie's short life on Broadway. He gave me the bootleg on, you know, cassette and said, this is going to blow your mind. And of course it did. And I basically from 16 to when I did the production, I was, what, 1920. There was no way you weren't going to get me to do that show. I just had to. He remembers a complicated mission to acquire a copy of the script. And I traded my original Broadway poster for the score. (laughs) And he came to my boyfriend at the time's apartment with this score. And like we did an like a drug deal for that score. And then I remember getting it and like running to campus being like, I have it, I have it. The Emerson production incorporated portions of both the Stratford and Broadway versions, as well as scenes from the movie. Jeffrey decided to rearrange the show to make it clearer from his perspective. He replaced Don't Waste the Moon with a scene in a diner that had been cut from the movie, in which Chris spells out her evil revenge to Billy. Sue's song, It Hurts to be Strong, was cut and replaced with White Star from the Stratford run. I went back to Larry Cohen's original movie script and like knew, okay, cool, like this doesn't quite work. It changes, it comes between two really heavy scenes, uh, important scenes. So like, let's try to find something that works better. And then that's why I added that scene with them in the, um, the diner, because I thought that was just such a cool scene too, because it's not in the movie. Um, it was like a gift. Was he concerned about staging the show without permission and making changes? I wasn't worried. I mean, maybe it was just youthful arrogance, but being part of college, like it was done through Emerson. So if there was any sort of legal ramifications, obviously we were covered by the educational clause. We weren't making money off of it. If anything, I spent my life savings to make it like, you know, the dresses. I still remember they cost like $75 each and we had to buy at least two because <laughs> we were doing two shows. So it was like that kind of stuff that I was just so hell bent on getting it up and running with all the 
you know, hiccups that come along with any production. Like in the Stage Door Manor production, he believes that having teenagers and young adults work on the show brought it fresh energy. Therefore, it became sort of my mantra to get through the show and iron out the teen scenes to sort of fix the problem that was, or not even the problem, the question raised by these two worlds in one show. I think as a result, as being a 19-year-old boy making this heavy show, the teen scenes in my version far outshine the mother-daughter scenes, which is a bummer, but like it's just what happened because obviously that's where my attention was. Um, Getting the kids to be, you know, over the top, getting that sort of firecracker energy and uh, having it really be about something. Working a part-time job at a local theatre, he also received some tips from a familiar character in our tale. Working as a child handler on Susicle, which was in Boston, um, which is how I got to talk to Betty Buckley. Betty was amazing. Um, I met Betty at a gala. She stopped dead to talk about it. I wasn't expecting that. I um, told her I was doing it and she she was so gracious. She talked to me for about 20 minutes. Um, all about Margaret, about Margaret's backstory, about why she is the way she is. Um, very dark, heavy stuff for, you know, a gala. <laughs> God knows what the people thought, watching us in a corner, talking and crying. But like, she was great. She signed my copy of Not Since Carrie that night. I have a picture of us together, which was like the culmination of everything. He came unnervingly close to being rumbled by the writers, one of whom was at the same gala event. I mean, there was even like a Ferris Bueller scene where I was at some party one night after rehearsals and Dean Pitchford was there. And I was just like, oh, if he only knew <laughs> what I was up to. Years later, his production also ended up on YouTube. I didn't know anyone was filming it. Like, that wouldn't have been my jam. Uh, and I wasn't happy with the orchestrations just because they only had like two days to learn the score. And so to the best of their ability and with what we were paying, we probably spent $200 on the production. So they were getting paid, you know, nothing. So I, it's not representative of what I would like people to see of like, my version of it. I think um, the opening number plays good. I'm happy with that. Um, uh, that's pretty much it. I, yeah, <laughs> I can't look at it like, I can't be objective about it. I just, it makes me cringe. I look at it and I'm just like, oh, I wish that was different. I wish that was different. So, you know, the, the end production was something. <laughs> it, wasn't my, it wasn't my idealized version, but it was like, it, it, it happened. Another early unlicensed production took place in 2001 at a high school in Holland. They even recorded their show and released an unofficial cast album. Of course, global Carrie fans jumped on the chance to hear new recordings of their beloved songs, even if they were in Dutch. Back in America, the request to mount an official production kept arriving in the writers' inboxes. You know, and as my collaborators and I would talk about when we would, every once in a while, we'd speak about maybe we could go back to it, maybe we should revisit it. People were asking all the time for the, 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 the score so they could do it at Carnegie Hall and do a concert of it and all that. But there was so much that we did not want in the show. We had watched it go off the rails and we, we couldn't call it back. They started to understand that despite the failure of the original production, something was keeping Carrie alive in the imaginations of fans around the world. And each time a fan discovered Ken Mandelbaum's book or another bootleg recording, the demand for a reassessment of Carrie swelled. Robbie, busy managing the unofficial Carrie fan site, remembers the level of interest reaching critical mass. And for years, because of the Carrie website, it would be an email every day. 
how do I get the rights to this? I want to do Carrie. Where should I go? Can I get a script from you? Can I get this? Can I get that? And obviously, like, I had no connection to the show other than having just created sort of a a one-stop shop for all things Carrie so people could find out about it. Um, it was just a lovely group of people who were very passionate about this show. I, I think uh, it really sort of created a community uh, and brought people together. As YouTube became mainstream, it was no longer a slog to track down the many videos of Carrie in Stratford in New York. And the show went from being the punchline of a joke with an underground cult following to being popular with a new generation of musical theatre fans. The agents who managed the performance rights for non-professional productions continued to report high demand for the show from high schools and community theatre groups. By the mid-2000s, rumours began to swirl that lyricist Dean Pitchford and his writing partners Michael Gore and Larry Cohen had reassembled to give the show another look. And in order to get it to back to someplace where we would want to license it, we would need to roll up our sleeves and do an enormous amount of work. And we needed a catalyst to pull us together. And in 2010, I think, nine or 10, we got that catalyst when the Broadway director, Stafford Arima, uh, asked to meet with me over breakfast in Los Angeles. Could it really be true that after all these years, Harry was about to come back from the dead. Next time on Out for Blood. Uh, we found somebody to whom the show mattered as much as it mattered to us. You know, there was a sense that perhaps the authors just wanted to put the piece in a kind of vault and let it live on in its mystery and... I guess it's YouTube clips and, uh, but there, then there was something about it that kind of kept gnawing at me. And then I got this audition like soon after for Carrie the musical. And I was like, Carrie the musical, that sounds like a crazy idea. <laughs> how does that, how can the, the details of the music change to, so you're not seeing a revival back in the time that, Everyone saw it when it first came out, but you're seeing it through modern eyes and hearing it with modern ears. We sat in a circle on the floor and, and Stafford um, basically just kind of laid out, you know, the plan and how he wanted to, how he saw this, how he envisioned this. And, um, and when he said he didn't want a drop of blood ever to, on the stage, and a new generation of theatre makers share their experience of staging Carrie. The off-Broadway production, what it did is it allowed the authors to revisit the material. I come from the brand of theatre that more is more, and I thought that that's what this, I thought that that's what this needed. We had it set up so that every room that you walked into was like a different setting within, out of, out of the book or out of the film. So you walk into a room and it's the locker room and there's tampons all over the floor and you see like Carrie White eats shit like written on the walls. And then you walk into another room and you're at, you know, you're, you're surrounded by all the pigs. You're at the farm, you know, and... and dead pigs. Dead pigs. <laughs> dead pig. <laughs> and there's a spooky sense of deja vu as Carrie returns to its British birthplace. Yeah, I was really nervous that night, actually. Um, and they all stayed and they had a chat with everybody at the end. And they were just crying and just so, you know, they, they loved it. 
Oh, for me, honestly, it's probably the highlight of my career so far. It was a dream. It really was. It's just, it's just such a great role. And so, who knows what the future has in store for uh, this uh, little girl named Carietta White? And um, but to be a part of its journey uh, is uh, incredibly humbling. Out for Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash outforblood. If you enjoyed Out for Blood, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you downloaded from. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a friend of Carrie, come and join us at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. And please keep sending us your feedback. We love it, like Chris Hardinson loves being a complete bitch. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. And me, Chris Adams. Sound engineering and editing by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Orne Hilmarsson. And artwork by Rebecca Pitt. Thanks this week to Dean Pitchford, Lindsay Haightley, Sally Ann Triplett, Eric Gilliam, Jeremy Sturt, Joe Iconis, Alice Ripley, Stephen Dolgenoff, Julie Cohen, Laura Dean, Annie Golden, Craig Hepworth, David Serda, Jeffrey Murphy, Julie Kleiner Davis, Vivian Cleary, Kaylee Smith Westbrook, Stage Door Manor, and Jeffrey McCann. I think that's pretty much everyone who's ever been involved in Carry the Musical. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Iconis is the multi award winning creator of the Broadway show Be More Chill. Visit him at mrjoeiconis.com. Details of original cast member Eric Gilliam's one man show featuring that Kill the Pig tribute can be found at ericgilliam.com. Craig Hepworth, that Robin Hood of the Carry bootleg world, runs the theatre company Vertigo Productions. Details at vertigotheatreproductions.co.uk. Thanks also to Todd Graff, who went on to write and direct the excellent cult classic movie Camp, based on his experiences at Stage Door Manor. And to Robbie Rozelle, whose albums, including the brilliant Songs from Inside My Locker, can be heard at robbyrozelle.com. And of course, have a listen to the one and only Scary the Musical at handbagproductions.org. I think that's everyone. Handy links are in the show notes in your app. See you next week. Uh, (laughs) Tommy Lately, (laughs) I've just not been feeling right. Yes, I'm so ashamed of how we've all been treated. Carrie White. Am I crazy? Am I getting too upset? I'd never dream of asking, but you've never failed me yet. Knew me a baby. I told you I'm not going to do that. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.